Greetings and welcome to this week's episode of the Seven Figure Millennials Podcast, where it is my job to help you to prioritize your happiness, health, and relationships while making your biggest entrepreneurial dreams a reality. And if this is your first episode, I just wanted to say welcome. Super excited to have you here. And if you're returning, welcome back. And I just want to say thank you so much and how much I appreciate you for coming back week after week. And regardless if you're new or returning, today you and I get to hang out with Graham Alcott. Graham is the author of four books, including the global bestseller, How to Be a Productivity Ninja, and host of the Beyond Busy podcast, which explores the issues of productivity, work-life balance, and how people define happiness in their lives. He is the founder of Think Productive, one of the world's leading providers of personal productivity training and consultancy with offices in the UK, USA, Canada, Australia, and the Netherlands. Previous roles of his include Chief Executive of Student Volunteering England, Head of Volunteering at the University of Birmingham and an advisor to UK government red and blue on youth volunteering policy. In this episode, you're going to learn three things. One, you're going to hear the scariest story of Graham's life. (laughs) He was chased by a silverback gorilla in Uganda. It's a crazy story and you're going to love hearing it. Number two, how you can increase your decision-making power by as much as 26% by making several small adjustments to the way you eat. And I want you to pay attention to the five ingredient rule and why a huge part of having more energy has actually a lot to do with the way you're stocking your refrigerator. And number three, why is someone who's known for his productivity strategies and has sold over 100,000 copies of his productivity book, does Graham believe that time is actually not our most precious resource and what is instead? We also dive into overcoming imposter syndrome, dealing with the negative side of productivity and how to overcome negative money stories that may be controlling your life. And before we dive in, one last thing is a pre-show listener shout out that goes to Traveling Matt 75 who left a review saying Brandon's show is pure gold. I listened to the Law of the Buffalo episode and it's brilliant. This is what we're doing now with my LinkedIn posts and masterclass and turning it into an ebook. Can't wait to listen to the rest of the episodes and learn more. So thank you so much, Traveling Matt 75 for leaving that review. And if you're a returning listener and you haven't had a chance to leave a review yet, please do so. Not only does it make my day, but it also helps more people to discover the show and I might give you a pre-show listener shout out in the future. So with all that said, please enjoy this incredible and wine-raging conversation with my friend, Graham Alcott. If you had to pick between A, making a ton of money, B, being happy, healthy, and surrounded with people you love, or C, making a meaningful impact on the world, which would you choose? The good news is that today we don't have to choose. So the question is, how can entrepreneurs like you and me, who have a vision for our lives and aren't willing to settle for anything less, how can we become financially successful and have a big impact while prioritizing our happiness, health, and relationships? You and I are on a mission to find out, and we have an incredible journey ahead of us. My name is Brandon Fong, and welcome to the 7 Bigger Millennials Podcast. Graham, welcome to the show. Super excited to have you here. Great to be here. Awesome. Well, I so I know we were just chatting beforehand, and I was telling you all the research that I do beforehand. And one of the podcast episodes that I listened that you were on, you had shared a crazy story. And I always like starting with crazy stories. And I, I have a method of my madness as to where I want this to lead. But okay. in one of the podcasts that you, you shared, you, you shared one of the scariest moments of your life is when you were in Uganda and you were getting chased by a silverback gorilla. <laughs> so can you, can you please tell us why you pissed the gorilla off or why he was mad at you and why you were in Uganda in the first place? Okay, so I didn't piss the gorilla off. That's a really important uh, <laughs> okay. piece of stuff. So I was living in Uganda at the time, actually. This is um, going back a few years, but I was, I was volunteering on an HIV AIDS education program there. I was the teacher of a 
teacher in a primary school with a class of about 180 kids. So teaching was pretty challenging. Um, and we were on our kind of, you know, halfway through the program break. And one of the things in Uganda is to go and trek the mountain gorillas, right? So we rocked up at Bwindi Impenetrable Forest, which is very aptly named. Um, and the idea is that you leave early in the morning, you're with a set of guides, and then there's another set of guides. They've gone ahead and they know where the gorillas were yesterday and they've got walkie-talkies. And so what they do is they then guide your guides and then usually in about an hour, it usually takes about an hour, you find where the mountain gorillas are. Uh, the Ugandan government has a thing where you're only allowed to spend an hour a day with them and there's only so many permits per day. So it's a very limited, special, expensive thing to do. So we're trekking and we're trekking and we're trekking and we trekked for about three hours and then um, I just, you know, decided to ask my guide, like, you know, I don't really hear very much on the walkie-talkies, like, do you, do you guys know where you're going? And he said, oh, the other walkie-talkies, the battery ran out, so we have no idea where they are, we're just walking. <laughs> so we ended up, we walked for probably about six or seven hours and Windy impenetrable, impenetrable Forest is like really thick, dense vegetation. It's up and down these like huge hills the whole time. We were absolutely exhausted. And then we get down to the bottom of this, this sort of crevice area. And the guy in front of me, he's got a panga, which is basically a big, big knife, right? And so he to get through, he had to panga the bush. So he's like literally just whacking this bush, right? Uh, and then the bush... I don't like the bush had been, you know, just doing a bush thing, just sitting there having it, you know, <laughs> doing what bushes do. <laughs> think they do what bushes do. And suddenly the bush just went, ah, it just made this like one of the most ridiculous noises I've heard in my life, right? One of those noises that just I, I can still feel part of my brain has lodged that as a danger noise. That if, if you hear that again, Graham, uh, you're in trouble. Um, and basically the silverback was in the bush, right? So it was just chilling in the bush and this guy hadn't seen it, right? Because it's just a huge bush. So the bush just shakes and whatever. And then we just turned around and started running up this hill and the silverback came sort of galloping out and just giving this, giving us this full display, like, get away. Like, what are you doing? Um, so, yeah, we did it. We only got charged for, you know, maybe five meters and then he kind of stopped and was like looking around and was just kind of staring and the guides that we were with, I mean, they spend every day with these just incredible creatures. So they have like a whole language of um, it's based around sort of a, a kind of front of your mouth cough, almost like sort of like, ho, ho. and this noise <laughs> that the gorillas understand. So it's almost like they're talking in the language of the gorillas. And then so basically this is like a sign to sort of show them that there's no danger, that we're OK. We might have been trying to you know, kill the bush, but we're not trying to kill him. Uh, and we just ran up the hill. And then what we realized um, when our hearts stopped absolutely pounding, we realized that we had actually stumbled right into the middle of where they were. And we were surrounded by baby gorillas and, you know, the mum gorillas over here and the babies were here. And we were just, they were all around and we'd not even seen them because we'd seven hours trekking and pangering the bush and whatever. And so um, the sad part of it from our point of view is, um, you're supposed to have an hour with them. And by this point, it was so late in the day that the guy was like, yep, so get your photos and we've got to leave. <laughs> sort of thing. So our hour was like five minutes. Um, but yeah, I get to tell the 
being charged by a silverback gorilla story to this day. So yeah, maybe, maybe it was for the best. <laughs> That's awesome. I love that. I could just imagine you kind of like jumping into like a real life Tarzan scene. And so <laughs> maybe that's the, the first takeaway for everybody. Everybody listening is not to uh, key takeaway. Number one is to not whack a silverback gorilla with a, a panga <laughs> in the middle of a Ugandan forest. Um, if, if that's valuable for everybody listening, just don't do that. <laughs> so the, the, the other reason why I wanted to start with that question too, is because I, I know from your LinkedIn profile, you spent a good chunk of your career doing lots of volunteering and volunteering was really important for you. You spent some time recycling English textbooks for East African schools. You helped with youth homelessness and charity and, you know, you recruited plenty of volunteers in your, if it was, I don't know if it was your organization or your student organization. So I was just kind of curious as somebody that spent so much time in volunteering, what made you so interested in, in that line of work and what got you into volunteering to begin with? Well, you went wrong when you said you did your homework, Brandon, eh? That's <laughs> impressive. So um, I don't know. what I don't think there was a single moment that got me into that. I think the main thing for me was, so I grew up, you know, really without having a lot of money in my family. Um, and, you know, money being a, the narrative for me around money was, uh, you know, was money was scarce, money was scary, you know, not having enough money was stressful, uh, there were some times where I was a free school meals kid at school and things like that. And then I'd gone to this quite posh British university, Birmingham University, probably one of the top top 10 or 15 universities in the UK, you know, just down the pecking order from kind of Oxford and Cambridge, but not, not too far down. Um, and I was surrounded by all of these people who came from very wealthy backgrounds. And they'd all done lots of volunteering and lots of things like that. And I had actually in my teenage years as well, I've been, I was a volunteer on the sort of hospital radio program and I've done lots of fundraising and, you know, organized um, sort of charity music gigs and things like that uh, before going to university. But it really struck me at university that I was suddenly in this very privileged world. And I think I just, to be honest, felt quite guilty about it. Um, the idea that I could rock up and study something that I was really interested in. I studied sociology. It would only take six hours a week. I had all this time. I just spent a year before I went to university. I worked for a, one of the major banks uh, for a year, just doing like data entry and very low level stuff, but working full time and, you know, being really relentless with trying to save up some money. So suddenly having all this time on my hands, I just felt like I wanted to put something back and, you know, do something that felt, um, you know, meaningful. So at university, I started doing a lot of volunteering around uh, a kids holiday program called Kids Adventure which was taking eight to 11 year olds from inner city Birmingham uh, out onto, you know, adventures. We, you know, we'd go to the beach, we'd take them into farmer's fields and stuff like that. And, you know, I remember one guy, uh, this little kid Tyrone, uh, we saw, we just drove up um, in this field next to cows and he literally points at the cow and he's like, what the F is that man? Like, what is that? (laughs) A cow, cow, dude. But he, he literally spent his whole eight years of his life, like, just in this, you know, big tower block, very small, uh, you know, sort of circle of existence. And he would never leave this, this really, you know, very tight area. Um, so yeah, that just, that was a huge influence on everything I've done since really was running these holidays for these kids. Um, we ended up, we, it was a student led and student run thing. So there was a bunch of us as volunteers. There were no paid staff. We did everything, hiring the minibuses, driving the minibuses, booking all the accommodation, booking all the places, uh, liaising with the social services government, you know, local government departments to get all the backgrounds of these kids and safeguarding issues. And everything was done just by 
people who are also juggling doing a degree, right? Um, but it taught me so much about leadership. Um, I think the best way to learn how to be a leader is to be thrown in at the deep end, um, which I think, you know, probably leads us on quite nicely to thinking about entrepreneurship too. But I think one of the best ways to uh, to learn uh, how to be thrown in at the deep end is to go and volunteer because suddenly you've got a whole bunch of people who are just crying out for help and support. You know, a lot of the charities are really struggling to find people who will put huge energy and leadership into some of these programs. And so, you know, it's a what's really great is that it's also a really safe space to uh, experiment with your skills and, and, you know, learn about yourself and your personal styles around leadership and, and kind of what uh, excites you and what, what makes you tick and, and that kind of thing. So that was just a huge influence. And then I ended up the early part of my career led on from that. So that was while I was a, a, a student and doing my, during my undergrad degree. Uh, but then I fell into a job kind of running the recruitment of student volunteers for Birmingham University, where I'd been studying. And then I ran the national charity Student Volunteering England, which doesn't, doesn't exist now. It actually got merged in with a bigger charity. Uh, but yeah, like in essence, being the person who represents student volunteers to the government and to funders and to everyone else. So I was kind of 26, 27 and literally like having, you know, meetings and lunches with government ministers here in the UK and stuff that was just, it was kind of mind blowing. And I think I, in hindsight, wished, I kind of wish that I'd have got that job in my 50s and probably done lots of on, more entrepreneurial stuff at that age, kind of my life's almost in reverse. Uh, but I learned so much from just, again, just being thrown in at the deep end and um, figuring it all out, you know? Yeah, I love that. <clears throat> and and one of the things that I think is actually a perfect bridge between volunteering and entrepreneurship is another thing I came across is that you, one of the ways that you started this, this volunteer organization called Inner Bowl was that you were putting up posters everywhere on campus offering volunteering opportunities oh, yeah. that didn't exist. So that seems very yeah. entrepreneurial. So would you, would you mind telling us that story on what happened there? Yeah. So, um, yeah, that, that's a really good example of where, you know, if we, if we slightly broaden out the definition of what is entrepreneurship and what is, uh, you know, what is being entrepreneurial. So I'd come back from Uganda where I would, I did that program and, um, you know, uh, had my encounter with the gorillas and I had seen what I'd seen there was some fantastic charity organizations, uh, who had some really good messages and really good uh, resources to give to young people in schools around HIV AIDS. The problem for a lot of the areas of Uganda that we were was it's very difficult for anyone who lives in these small villages, in these small tribal areas, to stand up and talk about sex and, you know, safe sex and you know, and condoms and all this kind of stuff, because it's so taboo, right? And mm-hmm. it's a very close knit community. So the reason it worked for us is that like, we didn't look the same as them. We were visitors, you know, they have a big thing there about uh, being hospitable to visitors. So they kind of had to listen to us, right? <laughs> um, and so what I figured out was, there's a whole bunch of students back in in the UK who perhaps just for a summer, maybe even just for two or three weeks can just come over and be that kind of mouthpiece, be that voice. Um, but I was back in, you know, working back in university. I didn't have a summer to take off and go and run the program. So what we did is we went around the campus at, at Birmingham 
And we just put up these posters saying, hey, this summer, do something amazing. Uh, come out and work on these programs. Now, I did know I did know the leaders of two or three of the of these charities because I'd just I'd sat down with them in Uganda and I'd, I'd taken their phone numbers. I knew who they were. Um, but other than that, nothing else existed. So we put these these posters up saying, uh, you know, do something amazing this summer. Like this is an amazing opportunity. Come and find out more. And then we had about 90 people, I think, show up in this meeting room in the student union. And I spent about 20 minutes at the beginning just share, just painting the picture that I've just painted to you, really, just around, you know, we need to get these messages out there because there's so many myths around HIV. There's so many myths around around sex and relationships and stuff. And I think, you know, you, you all sitting here can help. Uh, and then I said something like, well, you're probably wondering who organizes the program and, you know, how you sign up. And the program doesn't actually exist. But you in this room all have the skills to make it exist. And I will help you. So if you're interested in that, stay in the room. If you want to just sign up uh, right now and book a plane ticket and someone give you the golden ticket and do everything for you, this isn't the place. So you're very welcome to leave. Um, It's going to be harder work uh, than perhaps you expected. But like, trust me, it'll be worth it. So about half the people just got up and walked out. Okay, was, that was then, my next question. How many yeah. people did you retain? <laughs> yeah, about half the people walked out. But you know what? The people who stayed, there's probably five or six people. You know, I can, you know, this is sort of going back 10, 15 years, and I can still picture, uh, you know, all of their faces now who were absolutely instrumental in in setting up what then, you know, turned into Interval, which is in about 12 or 15 different countries uh, these days, you know, and does a, does a lot more than just... Uh, that Uganda project but you know the whole thing was again um, you know you can you can think that these things need experts and need you know professionals and institutions and whatever and actually the the capacity to do most of this stuff is is within us you know we just have to we just have to believe that it's possible and then it will be and you know the hardest part of creating that was there was one time where uh, somebody's dad, uh, there was a student who wanted to go on this program. So she would have been 18, 19. And her dad phoned me up and said, I'm really scared, Graham, about my daughter, you know, my precious daughter going to Uganda. And like, you know, I've watched films where they, the tribes carry spears. And, you know, he just had this very, uh, you know, old fashioned colonial view of what Africa would be and what Uganda would be. And I just had to convince him, like, mate, I've been there. I've just come back. They have petrol stations and cars. And you know, it's like, it's not what you've seen in movies. And, uh, you know, and I and I was able to just reassure him enough that, look, you know, we do risk assessments. We're not stupid. Uh, you know, we really, uh, like, work hard to vet the organizations that they're going to be going out with and all the rest of it. Um, but, you know, that was also a big moment because it, it made me realize, man, you know, the risk that um, this guy is is you know essentially transferring to me and sort of making me accountable for like that's that's his daughter that's the safety of his daughter you know it's like a it's a huge thing so it sort of feels like you know as an entrepreneur you can spend a lot of time thinking what if this goes wrong and what most of us don't naturally do as humans but what we all need to do as entrepreneurs is flip that round and say what if it doesn't what if it's all fine what if it goes well, you know, and you have to flip that switch in your head of, you know, what if it goes wrong? 
what if this happens? What if that happens? And, you know, just turn it into what if it doesn't and it's all fine. Yeah. There's a great resource on that topic. If you're interested in listening uh, and want to explore some more of this kind of stuff, Tim Ferriss has a Ted talk on fear setting, which is really, really good. And it's basically like, uh, yes. we have, we all these, we have yeah. all these negative stories of why we can't do something. And it's just kind of like this danger loop that goes over and over and over again. And very rarely do we just sit down and address the fact that it's probably not realistic, the worst case scenario yeah. that we're thinking about. So that's one thing I wanted to say. The other thing I think is really important is the fact that I think this is a very valuable lesson in entrepreneurship <clears throat> that when it comes to uh, creating a product or service, I love what you did is you basically put the idea out there and you're like, this exists and it didn't quite exist. You didn't have it fully fleshed because there's so many entrepreneurs that let it stop them. They think that they need to have it all figured out. And honestly, I found that the leanest entrepreneurship are the ones that can really get things going the quickest where it's like, you know, some I, I've made sales before where it's just like, I have a Google doc, not even a website, but like, here's a Google doc yeah. with the information. And like, that's what you were doing is you were stapling up those posters. And then you just kind of identified the people that were going to go along with you. So I think it's leanest, uh, lean entrepreneurship in the definition of the sense. And if you're listening to this and you're wondering if you need to have all the resources and all the funding, usually you don't. Uh, and you can do something scrappy like that and do something like Graham did and got an yeah. incredible volunteer organization off the ground by just putting up some posters with something that didn't exist yet. <laughs> Yeah, minimum minimum viable product. Talk about talk about minimum viable product, right? <laughs> so that was like a photocopier and 20 pieces of A4 paper and done. Right? Like no money. And so and I and I also the other thing that's worth saying is that you know, the early years of my career where I was working in charities and stuff, charities have no money, right? So often all of the money that a charity is collecting through grants and donations and stuff it's just going on the salaries like there's no marketing budget there's no budget for branding there's no budget for media and all this stuff so you it makes you it forces you to just be just very scrappy very bootstrappy um you know and just very resourceful and i i honestly think that that was also a really important grounding for me like setting up think productive because I'd, I'd never been in that corporate environment of of just having abundance of you know of budget and resource. Like I've always had had to do things really on a shoestring, and you know necessity is the mother of invention, right? Like once once you have that um, mindset that you're going to do it cheaply and 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 easily, and you're going to do it anyway, then it just kind of becomes the way you operate. So I think that's been a really important kind of lesson for me that I've kind of taken from the charity world and moved into my business world. Yeah, I love that. And that's that's why I really wanted to dive into volunteer to begin with is because it was such a prevalent part of your life. And I knew it had to have informed the way that you thought about entrepreneurship and the way that you built yeah. your business. So I'm, I'm glad that we covered that. Another thing that you mentioned in passing, and I appreciate you being vulnerable and sharing, and I, I share this story all the time. I grew up on the free lunch program at school too. And I had lots of negative money issues of like yeah. it always being a problem. And so in, in another episode that you had recorded that I listened to, you had talked about, um, you know, overcoming this negative money mindset and when it came to starting mm. your business and like how important that was for you to kind of overcome and rewrite those stories that have been told yourself. And you tell a story about, you know, your mom telling your dad about him losing his job. So I was just kind of curious if we can maybe discuss this because I think it's really important. And there's this quote that I, I repeat over and over on the podcast. I think it's becoming more and more prevalent, but it's until you make the unconscious conscious, it will control your life and you will call it fate. And we all have these mm. unconscious narratives that are kind of running our lives. And you know, you yeah. identified that as something that like I had this programming, I had to undo it before I start in entrepreneurship. So as somebody that is kind of untangled 
the negative uh, money stories that you were told growing up and created this this movement with Think Productive and you know Productivity Ninja. What were kind of the steps that you took to do that, and what you know how could we, if somebody's listening to this and agrees with that, or they're they're realizing that they might need help, how would you push them in the right direction? Yeah. Okay. Um, so, I think the first thing I'll say is just a really general overview of my understanding of money, which is that so I've got a couple of really good friends um here in the UK, a guy called Tom Nixon and a guy called Charles Davis. And those two people have spent a lot of time with a guy called Peter Koenig, whose uh whose work on money is um is really important stuff. And what Peter Koenig says, and you know, from the conversations I've had with with Charlie and Tom, basically money like money is just stories, right? So everything to do with money is just stories. So money doesn't have feelings. Money doesn't really have a value. It just has the story of the value that somebody puts onto it. So money is a blank canvas, um, but money becomes stories. And usually most people have one of four or five archetypal stories. So once you understand what your story is, it's much easier to then, like you said before, make that conscious, start to work with it and so on. So um, usually to find out your story about money, what you need to do is you need to think back to your earliest memories of money. And usually people's earliest memories of money tie very closely into that story. And I've, since talking to Tom and Charlie about this, I've talked to loads of my friends and lots of other people about it. And and it's remarkably true. Uh, So I've got a friend who her first memory of money was her, you know, she comes from a fairly wealthy background, but she was walking down the road at a very young age with her mum, and someone asked them for money, like the beggar on the street asked her for money. And she remembered thinking, this is not fair. You know, why is, why do we live in a house and we've got everything we need and this person doesn't have money. So money to her is about fairness and justice. Guess what job she does now? Her job is she advises NGOs and governments on um, tax justice in the world, right? So like all this kind of, you know, making sure that um, companies pay their tax and making sure that corruption doesn't happen. Like literally that's what she does with her life. Um, so so fairness is a big um, money story. Uh, freedom is a big money story. Um, dirty or evil is a, is a big money story, right? So like money is a horrible thing and I don't want to have anything to do with it. And then people's behaviors are often influenced by the stories. So um, if you think, and I I actually uh, for a long time was dating somebody whose money narrative was like money is dirty and evil. And so her, uh, literally her sort of uh, approach and behavior around money was like, it comes in and it goes out. I don't want to hold on to this. It's horrible. So it's dirty. I'm going to get rid of it. Um, my money story was about security, right? So a lot of my experiences growing up were to do with not feeling secure and money being the problem. Um, so generally what you find with someone who's uh, got security as their sort of dominant money story is that they tend to try and save. They, they're they very cautious and sort of quite conservative in the way they they manage their money and that kind of thing. And I definitely think that's still true, by the way. Like, So I think I've definitely, I've got over myself a lot around this, uh, but there's, and it's so deep seated and there's still a lot more to do. I'm still working on it. Um, but yeah, like, I guess I've got to, for a lot of, for, for a a long time in my career, uh, that money is security narrative was so strong that it really influenced, 
Um, it influenced me working super hard in my 20s. And I'm quite thankful to that story in some ways, right? Like, because there's, there's a good side to it too. It made me really ambitious because I was so fearful about if I lose this job, then I'm going to run out of money and I'm going to be bankrupt. And like, you know, the, the story plays out in, in the kind of fear narrative. Um, but I've got to the point now where I, you know, I know that financially I can be comfortable um, and I know that, you know, financially I, I'm sort of, I mean, I'm really, I'm in, in a position where I have a lot of freedom, um, you know, with my time and with my energy and everything else where I'm not far off being a, at a point where I could say, hey, I've got no mortgage. I've got some pension there. I, I can probably just retire. Um, but like at the same time, uh, it e- even though even though on paper I know that's the situation, part of me is still like, what if it runs out? What, what if it doesn't happen? Like, <laughs> it's still there, right? So it's a really deep seated uh, thing. But those, yeah, and and so those kind of money narratives. So uh, you know, and Brandon, if you can think of any of the other money narratives, throw them in. But yeah, like most people fit into those four or five, right? So it's like uh, a sort of you know freedom. Money is freedom. That's a very common one. Money is security. I have quite a lot of the freedom one too, actually, to be fair. Freedom, security, uh, money is dirty. Money is, you know, justice and fair and unfair. Uh, and uh, money is status and power. That's the other one mm. uh, that I remember. I think there might be one more actually, but those are like the main ones. Um, and yeah, it, once you understand that, it, it really, I think it's a really important thing for any entrepreneur is to understand your relationship with money. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it actually, you know, the thing about, and Charlie said this to me, actually, um, my friend who coaches people on this stuff, he said, um, n- none of those stories or none of those biases are right or wrong. It's just that if you don't address them, they, they influence every single decision you make in your business. Right. So it's like, it's not wrong. It's not good. It's not bad. It it just is. So just know that that's the lens that you make every business decision through, and then you can work out whether you want to change it or not, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So there's some homework for people listening right now. Think about what was your first money story? What was the first experience that you remember that happening? Was it, was it, do you you view your lens of money through fairness, freedom, dirty or evil security status and power? And I think I had a conversation with uh, a group that I run the other day and my, you know, my narrative was always similar to yours about security um, and, you know, always saving and, you know, not, not having enough of it and that kind of stuff. But the, the, the funny thing is I always view that as uh, a kind of like a, a negative, but what I realized through talking to somebody or another one of my friends, he's like, I grew up really wealthy and money was just like a finite thing that I didn't mm. fully understand. So like, I wasn't prepared for entrepreneurship because it just was always there. So like, I, it was, it was one of those things where it's like, I always thought, you know, that wouldn't be a problem, but money issues wouldn't be a problem if we had more money, but it can scar you no matter, <laughs> no matter how it is. So I think it's really important to kind of take up magnifying glass, no matter what your context was. And and you're absolutely yeah. right. It's going to impact your decisions on how you run your business, unless you kind of zoom in on this stuff. Yeah. And do you know the other, the other part to it as well? Um, so there's a lot of talk as we record this about the royal family in the uk uh and um you know they're probably at one extreme right in terms of being born into wealth you know it's a very extreme position but i think it can be one of the worst it can be one of the worst things to do to your kid is to have your kid grow up in wealth and just not notice and so I think, you know, for the likes of you, of you or I, like we, we learned money skills and we learned 
a lot of re- we had an awareness of money because we had to mm-hmm. and that actually probably serves us really well you know in terms of in terms of being entrepreneurs and the way we deal with money as an as an entrepreneur but then i think yeah if you're just born into a lot of wealth you know there's ways don't get me wrong you know to be born into a lot of wealth and to recognize that and to respect it but there's a reason why people like warren buffett and bill gates say they're not going to just hand all their money over to their kids right they're going to give it away to charities because they know that it would be you know almost verging on abusive to to be in a position at the age of you know 10 15 20 25 30 years old where you think you're going to inherit 8 billion dollars or whatever like like and 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 so come back to the royal family like i feel like um most of the people in the royal family i've met met a couple of people in the royal family too um and i feel really sorry for them i feel like they are trapped in a prison uh where surely one of the things about entrepreneurship and it's actually the same about you know running a good career where you work for someone else is you get a satisfaction about uh achieving stuff and about making things happen and and you know creating good things in the world and if your entire reason for, for existence so you think about prince charles right his entire reason for existence i think he's about 65 70 years old now all of his life has been waiting to get a job and he still doesn't have that job <laughs> and the day that he's going to have that job is the day that his mum dies like how screwed up is that right so yeah. it's like you know the the worst one of the worst days of your life and then it's like oh and now i have to you know step up and do this really massively important job that i've never done before on the day that my, it's just it's a screwed up system but i honestly think you know uh some sometimes i think i think the royal family kind of they they live in a prison and albeit a prison with good food but i think i'd much rather have i'd, I'd much rather have the sense that I started with nothing and I created something than yeah. it was just given to me. Absolutely. And everybody listening to this, you can listen to an episode I did with David Roy Newby, and he has a mastermind for billionaires. And he talks about transferring wealth in between generations and how they do that. And so much of wealth transference is not just the financial aspect, because if mm. you don't set your kids up with the right conversations, so that, that if you're interested in, in that, that's another way you can dive into this topic. But I know we can kind of keep going down this rabbit hole, but I, I, there are a few things I want to make sure I covered with you in regards to productivity, which is your main work, and then some of your, your new work with, with energy and health and that kind of stuff. And yeah, we should um, talk about productivity, right? <laughs> yeah, just uh, uh, yeah, let's get to it. Um, but this is this is kind of an interesting segue into this topic. But I, I there was this, I think this was from a uh, medium post that you wrote. You said many years ago, I was going through some crazy imposter syndrome that nearly resulted in me canceling the release of what ironically became my best selling book. And even more ironically, the book which contained a whole chapter about how your brain will sabotage your best work and best intentions. And the person that stopped you was somebody that, that was named Rashid. Oh, I don't know how to pronounce that. So what did he say that made you publish the book and that has now sold over a hundred thousand copies and been so successful? Yeah. He said two things. So here's the background to that was I'd self-published this book and I'd, I'd written it. It was ready to go. And I was, I was literally at the point where I was just about to come back from the, you know, from the book printers, you know, it wasn't even a publisher, it's the book printers. And I was freaking out and I spent one whole evening just reading every one star Amazon review I could find of any book online, you know, and part of that is my lizard brain, the part, the amygdala part of my brain uh, that creates fear. 
And that part of my brain is saying, you know, it's back to the money and security story, right? Like my, it's, it's basically saying you've got all these existing clients with think productive with your business. And what if this book's terrible and everyone laughs at you and you're ostracized from the tribe and from the crowd and what if all those clients dump you? And then what if you have no money? And then you, what if your business goes bankrupt? And what if you have to move back in with your mom, right? That's like the story that my brain was telling me. And it was, you know, it's really like Seth Godin, I think, has a really uh, great uh, phrase about this where he says, uh, you should use the lizard brain as, as your compass. And what he means by that is when you feel yourself freaking out and you start to hear your brain telling you those lizard brain stories about fear and, and judgment and, and everything else. Um, use that as your compass is about saying that's when you know you're kind of on the right track, right? Like if you're not, if you're not freaking your lizard brain out regularly, then you're probably not pushing the boundaries. You're probably playing too safe, you know? So you have to, you have to learn to push through that fear and just understand that it's kind of part of the process, you know, and that fear, particularly if it's to do with, you know, business risk and stuff, if you have money, security as your narrative becomes a really big thing. But yeah, I was with Rashid, my coach, and he said two things in that conversation. The first thing he said was, don't write this book for the people who will give you a one-star Amazon review. Write this book for the people who are going to give you a five-star Amazon review. And it's just like, again, flipping that, that flipping the, the thing around and to say, oh, yeah, someone's going to hate it. And also a hundred people love it. And that's cool. And that one person who hates it doesn't stop the book from existing. And it doesn't even stop the, the hundred people from loving it. It just is like somebody doesn't like it. Okay, cool. Um, so that was, that was a huge thing. And then he also said something which was very powerful. He said, you know, Graham, your work is about productivity. Your work is about putting stuff out into the world that you believe in. So you're struggling right now and this is your material like right here right now like this struggle that you're having write about it this is your thing so i've talked about that you know in in workshops and with clients and uh you know as you as you said there like I, i've written about it and and i think you know even even when you write a book called how to be a productivity ninja and even when your whole work is about helping people to make space for what matters and deliver good stuff out into the world like i still have all those struggles and i still have those narratives and and that's part of what's in the book. You know, the book has the, the 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 book starts with the phrase "dear human being," and one of our nine characteristics of the productivity ninja is human and not superhero. And the whole point of that is to say that just because you get good at productivity does not make you a robot and a machine. Um, you get good at productivity despite yourself, often not because of yourself. It's about how you overcome those failures and foibles and and flaws in your character. Um, but those things are they're there to test you, but they're, they're there and can be overcome, you know? Yeah. So I, I, I want to keep going down the productivity rabbit hole, but I just, I, I need to ask about this too, because I think it's so relevant in the world of entrepreneurship is this concept of imposter syndrome. So yeah. do you still suffer from imposter syndrome today, quote unquote, and like for somebody that is wondering, you know, if they're good enough to start their business or good enough to publish the book, what advice would you give them? Yeah. Um, so I had Oliver Berkman on my podcast, Beyond Busy, a little while ago. He He's an interesting character. He's spent the last 10 years writing a column for the Guardian newspaper, one of our big newspapers here, called This Column Will Change Your Life. And so to do that, basically what he does is every week he reviews another self-help book. So he's read a self-help book a week for 10 years. 
probably wow. read more self-help books than anyone else I've ever met. And he had this, this lovely phrase, which is um, the best way to overcome imposter syndrome is to realize that you are one. Mm. And so really it's about saying everyone's just muddling along. Like no one, no one's got it all sorted here. Like we're all struggling with stuff. Um, and so, yeah, I definitely subscribe to that. I'm going through quite a big period of imposter syndrome at the moment because I'm working on a new book and it's a leadership book and it's not about productivity and it feels like it's away from my my core, uh, I wouldn't say my core expertise, but certainly it's away from the core of what I'm known for. Right. And so like, and it's also with a new publisher uh, they're called Penguin, quite famous publisher. <laughs> and I think there's just, uh, you know, there's a sort of imposter syndrome part to me, which is like, oh, geez, this is Penguin. This is like big boy stuff now, you know. So I'm definitely in like the middle of imposter syndrome there just with that. Um, and also, you know, a big part of what I do generally is I go and give talks to a lot of our clients. So I'll go and do keynotes and, you know, speak as part of events and stuff. So I sort of, naturally as part of that put myself in front of 100 200 600 people where every pair of eyes is trained on you for an hour or for 40 minutes or whatever it's pretty difficult yeah, i think you'd be a psychopath to not be feeling nervous about that or feel imposter syndrome about it so you know generally if i do one of those kind of keynotes um it's it's kind of three days of my life right because the two days before i'm not sleeping and then the day itself is just so fraught with nerves. And then the day afterwards is recovery sort of thing. So like a, a, a 45 minute thing, uh, you know, takes me kind of three days really. Okay. So we've talked a lot about imposter syndrome and how to overcome that. I think you have lots of incredible insights on that. And I, I love the quote, the best way to overcome imposter syndrome is to remember that you are one. I think that's, that's really powerful. And I've, I've, I've seen this from many successful entrepreneurs. You can hear plenty of entrepreneurs and people that have done incredible things and they still feel imposter syndrome. So it's something that doesn't really go away. And it's really something that you just kind of have to continue to push through. Um, so th- that was my, my side uh, tangent that I had to chase as the imposter syndrome. But I, I, I want to talk a little bit about productivity. There's two main things I want to talk about are productivity. And then I want to talk about energy and health, because I think y- the way that you approach energy and health in, in your newest book is incredible. But um, one of the core philosophies that you teach all the time is the difference between time management and attention management. I think it's a really high level, important concept that I think people could grasp. So could you maybe talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So uh, time versus attention. So a lot of people would say that time is our most precious resource. Um, but really attention is the most precious resource. So what I mean by that is if you think about how you feel at, you know, four in the afternoon on a Thursday, you've had a really busy week, you probably don't have the same energy and attention as, you know, 11am Monday morning, you've just had coffee, like it's all, it's all new and fresh again. And so how we manage our attention, meaning how we particularly manage the two to three hours of a day where we have what I call proactive attention is what really matters. So every day we have two to three hours of the best energy where we're able to do the most difficult things on our to-do list and how we manage that two to three hours really impacts everything else. So that actually make that's good news, right? Because what it means is you don't have to worry so much about managing every minute of every day, you know, when you feel tired or you're not quite on form. Um, so my attitude really is you don't have to worry about, uh, when you have less energy, you have to worry that the stuff that you're doing when you have your best energy is your best work, right? So the hardest stuff, the most difficult thinking, the biggest decisions, the most creative. And so 
the problem that we come across, you know, time and time again in, in our work at Think Productive is people whose best energy and attention is the morning. And where do they spend that morning? They spend it in email and they spend it in other people's boring meetings. And really what we should be doing a lot more is reclaiming that two to three hours and saying, right, this is the time where I need to get my heads down and really create. Um, so Cal Newport talks about this as deep work. Um, you know, we need to think about that two to three hours as being the most precious resource that we have. And if we allocate that well, everything else looks after itself. That's basically yeah. what I, that's basically the core of Productivity Ninja in, in two minutes is like manage your attention, be really ruthless around that quality attention and don't beat yourself up if not every other hour is brilliant. Yeah. That's so true. And that's, that's been a huge realization for me too. In the way that I organize my days, I do Tuesday, Thursdays are my call and podcast days and Monday, Wednesday, Friday are my, my focus days. And nice. yeah. I, I, if, if I don't, if I have to make sure that I can't, I can't, I don't check my phone before I do the first few blocks of work. I don't check my email. I don't check my, my text messages because any random thing that kind of just flits my attention, like it eats away. You're right at that precious three hours where for me, it's right when I wake up and it's just like 15 minutes and I, I plan my day ahead of time. So I know the highest quality work. So yeah, it takes some introspection to understand when that time is for you. And I love yeah. the idea yeah. of attention management versus time management. The other um, thing you mentioned there, that's also you, so you've hit on something there that's also really key around attention management. So scheduling, you know, the right tasks for the right kind of attention is one part of it. You then you talked just briefly there about interruptions and there was a study done a few years ago. Uh, it was actually done with workers at Microsoft. And they gave these people at Microsoft some, you know, quite difficult mental tasks to do. And then they observe what happened when, whilst they're trying to do these, these, you know, sort of serious, deep thinking mental tasks, they sent them one minute email interruptions, you know, as they were trying to do this stuff. And they observe what happened when someone gets a regular one minute email interruption. What it found was that every one minute email interruption takes you on average about 15 minutes to recover from and get back onto what you're doing. So how you manage your attention in terms of what you allow, you know, to, to screen in versus what you screen out is absolutely critical. So I have a, I have a phone blocker on my phone. So similar to you, like certain hours of the day, uh, you know, the phone calls don't get through. I can't access Instagram you know, all those things are kind of blocked off on my phone. And I know that that is not only stopping other people from interrupting me at that time where I, that's really critical for me, but it's also stopping me from interrupting myself, right? That's the other thing is when we get bored, when we're struggling, then we just interrupt ourselves with a whole load of nonsense. So you have to, in a way, kind of treat yourself like a child a little bit uh, and sort of, you know, be the, be the harsh parent for yourself and, you know, usually that pays dividends if you're if you're good at setting up the rules in the right way. Yeah, we can I'm sure we can nerd about this for hours. Like I I I do not have a single notification on my phone. Like I don't nice. enable yeah. notifications at all. Yeah. My friends used to make fun of me because for a long time the only way to get a notification on my phone was Venmo. Um and, and so like people would send me uh, <laughs> transactions for like a cent to get me to pay attention <laughs> to my phone. Uh, but so like I have all notifications off on uh, another really quick few hacks if you also are interested in this topic. There's something called grayscale mode. You'd be surprising yeah. how annoying and dull your phone is if you turn it on grayscale mode. So that was something I did when I was trying to overcome that. And another really even simple simpler, more archaic thing that helped me when I was just kind of trying to weed my way myself away from the phone is put a rubber band around your phone. 
it's like it's mm. like a weird weird like thing where it's like you pick up your phone out of habit but then there's like this rubber band around it that makes it hard to use and you're like do i really need to be looking at this right now uh, and so that's another kind of interesting thing that you can do but um yeah i'm sure that's we a lovely that tip I've, I've, I've never come across the rubber band before that's a good one yeah there you go T- yeah. let's take that one the uh, so here's here's one this is if if i had one question that i had to ask you about productivity this is the one that i really wanted to make sure i asked is because I consider myself like this person that is obsessed with productivity. I've read all the books, I've done all the stuff and I you know there, there, there's a good side to productivity. It helps you be an incredible person, but at the same time there's a there's an evil side to productivity. And you wrote about this in another piece of of uh, medium I think. It's like sometimes as a productive person you have this narrative where it's like if you don't have an on day all the time, you just beat yourself up. Like you just have this this narrative like it can be motivating but toxic at the same time of having an off day. So as somebody that is listening to this and as somebody that has studied so much productivity, how do you handle the balance between needing to be feeling like you need to be on and doing things all the time? And also the times when you actually just need to be kind to yourself and not beat yourself up. Yeah. So I guess there's two levels to that. The first level is to say that, you know, sleep is productive, right? Uh, Rest is productive. Downtime is productive. Leisure is productive. You know, and so I, I'm lucky in that I don't ever think I've fallen into this trap in a, in a, in a big way, but I know a lot of people who have, who fall into this trap that is like, they can't be awake unless they feel like they're doing email or kind of being productive in some kind of way. So, so I think that's, you know, stage one of this, you know, you know, work-life balance 101. And my, my podcast beyond busy is really all about how the boundaries around how people switch off and how you manage your life as well as your work and all that sort of stuff. And I think I do that quite well, but I think, you know, it's really important just to acknowledge that first. Some people really struggle with the idea of sitting down in an evening and not be doing something work-related or be working on their 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 newest startup or whatever. And it's like, I remember coaching this amazing woman a few years ago um, in New York, and she was running this charity sort of NGO for uh, refugees, uh, people who literally had nothing. She was doing just absolutely incredible work. And we, we sat down to do some basic productivity coaching of, you know, setting up what I call the second brain, right? So having a really good app and having good systems or whatever within about two minutes of her, you know, starting this process of just trying to establish what she had in her head and what she was working on. She just broke down in tears and you know we started talking about it and I gave her some coaching and I remember saying to her the world needs you at your best for the next 40 years not burnt out in the next three months and just you've got to be kind to yourself right and she was just because the work she was doing was so urgent and it was like it was important she was doing really important work and it was it was her charity it was her baby and you know she was she was trying to grow it she was trying to scale it everybody needed her like not just the refugees that the charity was helping but like the staff that were taking their guidance from her and like it was new and you know i could see why she got into this trap but like the trap was you know she was on the risk of burnout very quickly so i think that's the the, the first level right like we've got to kind of set that as the first level and then I think the second level is what I was talking about in that piece, which is about the, the whole thing of toxic productivity and the idea that we always have to have a brilliant day and, uh, you know, we we start to beat ourselves up if, if something doesn't go well. Um, I think the other thing that has been 
a useful learning point for me is there's been a couple of times in my life where I've had depression. And when you have, you know, clinical depression, your brain basically just goes into this shutdown mode where it's just impossible to do any work, right? So, and I think having been through a couple of those periods, it gives me the perspective that it's okay if your brain just doesn't show up for work one day, you know, that that just happens. And so I'm really, I'm really relaxed about that as long as I know that my attitude is to still always want to do my best. And if someone else has that same attitude, I'm really relaxed with them and, and how they treat it too. So, you know, Think Productive, my company, we, we have duvet days written into people's contracts, right? So it's like, if you just have one of those days, just call us and just say, I'm having a duvet day. And there's no, there's no narrative. We don't need a reason why. We don't need anything. Just, okay, cool, duvet day great. See you tomorrow. You know? And so I think that's important to, to make it non-judgmental because it it's not any, it's no slight on you if one day your brain just doesn't turn up to work and it's no slight on you if you've been hammering really hard. And then one day you just feel like you're zoning out. Like that's just how brains are. It's just mm-hmm. how people are. And what I found really interesting through the pandemic period is people. Uh, so two things one is people not acknowledging that the 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 shifting ground of the pandemic and the shifting reality of the world in the pandemic is mentally draining for everybody and so your brain is already depleted much more than it would be normally and then also you're trying to homeschool and then you're trying to be productive right no wonder people are quite a bit less productive right so i think just recognizing that when the external environment changes so often that has a mental cost for everybody individually, mm-hmm. um, you know, in terms of stress, uh, in terms of uncertainty, in terms of making all of those different decisions and, and having to be that kind of agile. Um, and then I think the other thing that's been really interesting is people who spend their whole life uh, being busy. And that doesn't just I don't just mean about work that can also just be busy social lives, busy at the gym, busy here, busy there. People spend a lot of time running around being busy and the rug has been pulled from under them quite a lot during the pandemic where, you know, we're on lockdown, can't go out, no restaurants are open, all the gigs and theater and everything doesn't happen. Um, And what you realize is that people, and I actually would include myself in this a fair bit. uh, Being busy is a really good way to, avoid confronting your soul right and it's a really good way to avoid confronting uh just the fragile nature of everything and so i think when people have had to really sit with that and like sit with their own mortality and sit with you know uh sit with themselves it's deeply uncomfortable and being busy is often just a it's it's you know it's just like the the tonic that you can take so that you don't have to think about that stuff or like the escapist, mm-hmm. you know, being busy is almost like YouTube for the soul, right? It's just like escapist kind of nonsense that we just keep ourselves uh, occupied with so that we don't really have to confront. And I found that really fascinating, not just for me individually, but just for people around me as I've seen it as well, that like, I think there's going to be quite a long, quite a long legacy from COVID for all those reasons. And also it's going to have a legacy on productivity, right? Because I think it also really, uh, it really influences how we see ourselves. And, you know, ultimately what I hope is that we come out of this being much kinder to ourselves because of that. 
Yeah. You know, it's funny. It just happened. It just so happened that this week I interviewed two people. The, the person I interviewed on Tuesday was Carl Anore, and he. Um, oh, I love the, Carl. The, yeah, I've yeah. had Carl on my yeah. podcast as well. Oh, that, yeah. that's awesome. Well, it's just funny. I just thought it was funny, like on the calendar when I saw the slow guy and the productivity guy. But like you know, after diving into your your content, you know, you are a lot about understanding the most important things and, yeah. and productivity is a way of slowing down as well. So I just thought it was funny seeing those side by side, but, but diving into it, I love that, you know, it's not all about just getting a million gajillion things done. That doesn't matter. You know, it's, it's important about having the broader context and you're right. The existential questions are the things that we don't want to answer. And so that was one yeah. thing that I was telling Carl about is for, for 20, 2021, I take, um, I'm taking one week off at the end of every single quarter. And then like the last Thursday of the month, every single month, because I do usually my Thursdays are like Tuesdays and Thursdays are usually back-to-back calls all day. So taking off a, a Thursday at the end of every month so I can have a really long weekend and not have to have a conversation with people is like, it's nice. been, it's been very, very helpful to kind of just make sure that I'm understanding where I'm going. And that's so, like that, that, that normally in societal, you wouldn't, classify that as productivity but it really is in in many senses of the word so yeah i mean that's why i said before like sleeping is productive leisure is productive downtime mm-hmm. is productive right the because what that allows you to do you know you can see sleep as just a beautifully indulgent thing which i do i love sleep but if you can't see that if you're finding it tough to see that see it as ninja preparedness right see it as like this is an investment in tomorrow being great if that's what it takes for you to sleep better, then like, go ahead. But I yeah. think for me, like my definition of productivity. Um, so I used to have, you know, these very sort of technical definitions. It's to do, you know, input and output and all this stuff. And what I hit on over the years is it's really productivity as a, the definition for me is productivity is just about making space for what matters. And so, you know, part of that is about, you get better at productivity by doing fewer things, but doing the right things. You don't get better at productivity by more, more, more. You get better at productivity by less. Yeah, right. So that's an important part of it. But also productivity is about making space for what matters. And and really the, the space that we need to create is for quality thinking. It's for perspective. It's for relationships. It's for ourselves, mindfulness. You know, all these things that that really matter in the world productivity should serve those things and so that's kind of how i see it is that like i'd much rather be you know really like hyper focused doing great stuff and then going home early <laughs> you know uh than being in a place of kind of pressure pressurizing myself to work 12 hours a day 100 hours a week and hustle 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 right yeah so the last thing I wanted to dive in is a really important topic is you have this new book out called How to Have the Energy, Your Nine-Point Plan to Eating Smarter, Improving Focus, and Feeding Your Potential. And one of the things that I really liked in reading this is the fact that it, it, you, you take it from the perspective of productivity, of like somebody that is really busy understanding the, the highest level things that we need to know to make sure that we're putting the right fuel in our body because that is a huge component of productivity, but also understanding that like we, we, we may not want to dive into to all the nitty gritty, crazy science between everything. So like, what's the, the happy balance? So um, can you maybe just tell us, I know, I know one of the arguments you talk about how eating certain foods give us a 26% extra executive decision-making power. So that's like one of the main benefits, but just maybe tell us and set up the story about why this was a really compo- important thing for you to start t- talking about. Yeah. So I should start this by saying it's a, it's a co-authored book. So I'm not a nutritionist, but my co-author very much is Colette Hennigan. 
And the the story of this started when I'd met Colette a couple of times, but I was struggling with my own energy. So I was getting to sort of, you know, 3 p.m., 4 p.m. in the day and just really slumping and just, you know, not feeling great. And I said to her at one point, I was like, is there something I can do? You know, uh, is there is there some pills I can take, some vitamins I can take that will really just like boost my productivity? So my starting point was the hack, right? Like what's the shortcut? What's the easy thing? So we've written the book for old me and with the idea that like this is a, a nutrition book for people who can't be bothered, right? People who don't want to know all that science stuff, whatever. Um, but all the science is in there. Um, but just we've tried to make it really accessible and easy to do. Um, but yeah, I mean, what I noticed over time is I did about six months of coaching with Colette where I would send her every meal that I was eating. I would send her a photo on WhatsApp and she'd send me back comments and, you know, upgrade that, you know, that's great. What are you doing there, Graham? You know, all those kind of, uh, you know, little sort of coaching moments and holding me accountable for what I was eating. And my energy just went through the roof. Like it, it was, it was remarkable um, not just how much more energy I had, but also just how quickly it changed. You know, two weeks really was like all it took. And suddenly I was like, wow, this is just, I just feel different. Uh, and people honestly, for the first time in my life started saying, oh, you look, you look great. You look well. And I was like, <laughs> oh, okay. And so like, you know, that was an, just a nice side effect of the whole thing is like, you know, people actually look at you in a different way. Um, and so what we started to notice when I, when we were going through this coaching was how much uh, nutrition and food and what you eat and therefore how much energy you have. It's just all another, it's all another set of stuff where you're managing habits for yourself. Right. And so it's just the same as productivity. And we started to notice all these crossovers between my work with productivity ninja and then her work, you know, she, her work is as a wellbeing coach going into companies and, and helping people with this stuff you know, on either in groups or, you know, one-on-one with people. And so that's where the book came from. And um, so the book's called How to Have the Energy. Um, the idea is that, uh, one, in fact, one of the little things that we talk about in the book is consistency beats intensity. So really what it's about is saying, do the simple things consistently and well, and then you don't need to follow really complicated keto diets and paleo and like you know, fasting and all this stuff. There's a little bit of fasting in the book, but not in that kind of extreme way, five, two and all that stuff. But the idea is if you can do the really simple stuff and do it well, it doesn't take a lot of your willpower to make that happen. So it sticks better when it's not a radical overhaul of everything you're eating and drinking and doing. Um, So this works for meat eaters. It works for vegans. It works for everything in between. Um, There's a whole bunch of stuff in there around allergies and stuff as well. But, you know, in, in the main it's you know there's there's a really nice simple plate in it it's like just eat food that looks like this uh, there's some nice um recipes in there too and the whole purpose of it is just to help people to get more energy and it's um what's lovely is uh through amazon reviews and then through email like the feedback that we've gotten already on the book it's only been out for 3 months is just astounding you know in terms of the life changes that it's inspiring for people so it's so one of those, the bookshops have been shut. So we, we it's sold okay, but it's been quite hard to sell a book when the, there's no bookshops, right? A lot of business books are bought when people stumble into airports and come across it. The cover's great and it's got a great title and, and we've got high hopes for it. But um, yeah, so far it's one of those little hidden gem books that we hope is going to go on and um, become a bestseller. Yeah. I mean, I'll be just, I'll just share my 100% honest feedback and opinion on it. Like when I saw like how to have the energy, I'm like, okay, let me read this thing. But like, usually, usually the health stuff, it's like, it's so, I, I guess I have like 
conditioning for health books where it's like, there's going to be so much information. I like, don't know what I need to actually include, but I was just really happy to go through it. And it's just like, Oh, I can read this. Cause it's like written from the perspective of, yeah. of, uh, you know, productivity as well as, as, as having the, what you need to know. So I really appreciated that. And there are a few things that I wanted to make sure we got for the listeners. Cause I think there's like an 80, 20 of like, just understanding these basic things, you know, there's, there's a lot, you can go deeper if you want, but the 80, 20 of it, if you understand these things. And one of the things I thought was so cool is you eat well, when you put good stuff in your fridge and mm. like, you think about like uh, Benjamin Hardy, my friend has a book called willpower doesn't work. And it's just like, if you, if you just have the right things in your house, <laughs> you just know what yeah. to put in your house. It doesn't, you don't have to think about what you're going to cook and all that kind of stuff. If you just have the right ingredients sitting around, you're going to naturally just eat a little bit better. And so, um, in relation to that, you you have this concept that's that's kind of the core of the book is the energy plate, and it's made yeah. up of three main things. So do you kind of want to maybe walk us through the energy plate and how we can just get an understanding of how to stock our fridges appropriately according to that? Yeah, so the, the eating good food when you have good food in the fridge. So I was sending all my meals to Colette every day, and one day I sent her just something really beige and uh, not rainbow-colored, which is one of the, the things we emphasize in the book. And she sent me back this beautiful bowl of salad. And I was like, yeah, but I'm busy. And And she was like, Graham, you eat good food when you have good food in your fridge. So that's really where that came from. And so preparation being a really important factor here. Um, So the energy plate is basically um, half of your food uh, should be eating the rainbow, right? So eating plant food. We have this phrase in the book, uh, eat predominantly food made from plants, not food made in plants, right? Mm -hmm. So you don't want the factory processed food. You want natural plant-based food, 50% of what's on your plate. Then 25% smarter carbs and then 25% proteins. And the way we think about uh, those two things in particular, carbs and proteins, society is really damaging around some of the narratives there. So, you know, lots of people eat far too much protein. Uh, They think that they need far more than they actually do because they're exercising and for lots of other reasons. You have people who completely cut out carbs as if that's, um, you know, a a, a useful thing to do for their own diet. Um, All of the science around protein and carbs is that you will not absorb proteins properly unless you have carbs, right? So you actually need carbs in order to get the benefit of proteins. So yeah, 50% rainbow plants, 25% smarter carbs, 25% proteins. And that is it. That's the basic formula. What's nice about that is you can use that for every meal, but also you can use it across a day or over a couple of days. So let's say you have a really big pasta dish and that's predominantly carbs. Okay, so I just need to make up with that for that with a bit more, you know, kind of salad or other proteins or whatever, like for the next meal. So you can kind of use it across a day as well. Um, and then in the book, we go, we list, you know, we list what are the uh, so the the plant ones we have the the, the very important plants the VIPs uh, so things like blueberries are one of those spinach and leafy greens and there's a few others that we say look these are the ones that really have the best bang for their buck in terms of the raw ingredients so emphasize those um, and then we do the same for the carbs and, and proteins as well so it's kind of it's all there in the book in terms of the the specifics of that but what I like about it is just as a visual you know so if you just imagine the the roundness of a plate, cut it in half. Half of that is your uh, rainbow. Your, your rainbow <laughs> plants. Eat eat the rainbow, and then a quarter of it is is the proteins. A quarter of it is the carbs, and and that, that's kind of it. There's there's a there's a bit more to it, but um, that's enough summarized quickly on a podcast that you can actually start you know putting into practice and using. And by the way, all of that is um, you know I mean Colette is the most voracious reader of new scientific papers i have ever come across in any subject um so literally like we're two weeks before the 
uh, book goes to press and she's like, I've just found a new study. I, need to... I was like, no, Colette, <laughs> we kind of need to just let the book do its thing. So um, so she is really on top of that in terms of um, the, the science behind it. And there's an awful lot of people who talk a lot of stuff about nutrition where really it's just from what they've found works for them. And what Colette's doing is saying, this is literally the science of food. As, as much as the scientific community knows it, this is what we know now. And so, and what I love and what I'm proud of with that book is like everything in there is, is backed up by that science. Yeah. Love that. And so it's not, it's not 50% Skittles though, not 50% rainbow Skittles, it's <laughs> <right>. 50% <laughs> rainbow plant. <laughs> um, so th- thank you for sharing that. I love that. It's, and I like the idea too, cause it's like, I think it, you know, marketing you see all the time, it's like a plate divided in half. I, th- I like the, the, the visual idea I have in my head is like, okay, if I have a pasta heavy meal that it's, it's like, not just every single plate needs to have 50% rainbow, 25% protein, 25% smarter carbs. You can kind of just generally balance in your head. Like, Oh, I ate a lot more of this, this day I can move it over there. So that, that was, I appreciate you sharing that. The other thing that I think is really high value relevant for us to to talk about is being more label savvy. And that's Mm. one of the things that you talk about all the time. So um, maybe share, if you have a few of them that just kind of come to mind as the most important things is because we we see these labels and I I was going to, I was going to say this too. Uh, my wife, Leah and I, we use this avocado spray and it, it, as a, as a main thing. And if you look at the back of the label, it says zero, you know, zero carbs, zero, zero, everything basically. But then if you look yeah. at the serving size, it's a quarter of a second of a spray. <laughs> and so it's like, we have to deal with these labels all the time that are manipulated. Like, oh, it's got zero, but like, how do you even do a quarter of a second of a spray? You kind of have to just tap the thing. So, so anyways, uh, how can we, un- how can we understand labels better and just make better decisions when it comes to what we're putting in our body? Yeah. So two or three things here. And again, so prep is really important, right? So how you understand labels really determines what is in your fridge to then put in your body, right? So like, this is really fundamental stuff. Um, One of the things I learned from Colette, which I didn't know before, was when you read the back of a label, the order that those things are in is the order of size, like, you know, from, you know, biggest ingredient, and then sort of working its way downwards. So if you see something where, uh, let's say the first ingredient or the second ingredient is sugar, you know, it's a very heavily, um, you know, sugar based product. Um, one thing you can think about here is the five ingredient rule. So as a general rule, food that is made in plants, food that is made to have a long shelf life will contain lots and lots of preservatives, um, emulsifiers, sweeteners, all these kind of things to try and uh, you know, just give it a, a a longer shelf life, but still a good taste. Um, so think about five ingredients or less as being a really nice rule of thumb here. If you look at the back of a packet of porridge oats, most uh, back packets of porridge oats, um, it'll just say ingredients, porridge oats, and it's one ingredient. So stuff that's one ingredient um, is much better than stuff that's five, but five is a really nice kind of cutoff point. And then be really critical in your thinking about marketing so one of the things we have is don't eat food with its own jingle so any food that has advertising campaigns to persuade you to buy it probably isn't worth eating Uh, but um, if you think about stuff like 20% less fat um, well there's two things there first is fat is not the enemy sugar is the enemy right so uh, there are certain fats that we want to avoid we want to avoid hydrogenated fats um, but standard 
you know, normal, normal fats are actually good for us. We need some of those fats. A lot of those fats are really high in different amino acids and stuff that are really important, really good protein stuff. So don't think about fat as the enemy, first of all. But secondly, when they say low fat yogurt, generally what they do is they put loads more sugar in to compensate for the fact that they've taken the fat out. So like you can actually, like actually if you have full fat milk, full fat butter, uh, full fat yogurt, the creamiest, nicest yogurts, they're actually better for you than having the low fat alternatives, right? So often people just equate low fat equals healthier, just not true. Uh, Gluten-free is another one where, yes, some people have genuine intolerances um, to gluten, but things are marketed as gluten-free in a way that um, infers that they're healthier, just not true, generally not true. So a lot of those things that we uh, have made assumptions about, I think, you know, just come from the media and advertising and, you know, often kind of setting up a straw man, you know, so like, oh, fat's really bad. So we can help you by cutting this out with this new thing, you know. And so we have to kind of unlearn this stuff. You know, my parents still have in their fridge at home, um, like, you know, margarine and sort of, you know, uh, spreads that are not butter, but they're, you know, they're kind of marketed as like the alternative to butter kind of spreads hundreds of ingredients on the back. And I'm slowly persuading them just go and buy organic, lovely butter. And it's just, it tastes way better. Right. So, so that's the good news is that some of those things that we told ourselves were naughty are actually the, they're the good things, not the bad things. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we know we need to reeducate ourselves and reeducate people about a lot of this stuff. Yeah. Thank you so much. And a few, a few other things I know uh, when you get quizzed as an author, somebody, I was on somebody's show and they're asking me all these specific things about my book. I'm like, I need to kind of look at it because it's like, you don't forget, remember everything at every single thing. Another, a, a few other things that I thought were really high level things is like, if you can't mm. pronounce it, don't eat it. I really like <laughs> that. Um, look out for the oses. Like if it ends in, you know, os. Those are, those yeah. are kind of the things. And then avoiding high fructose corn syrup uh, is, is just general things. And I just love how simple that is, you know, like everybody can remember the five ingredient rule. Everybody can remember that the order of the foods on the list, if it starts with sugar, that means not only is sugar in it, it is the most prevalent ingredient in it. Mm, don't, yep. if you can't pronounce it, don't eat it, you know, the jingle stuff. So, so yeah, that's the kind of stuff that's in how to have the energy. So if you kind of want the 80, 20 high value, what you shouldn't eat and how to just make those really quick decisions, really good. La- last thing I want to talk about on this topic, and then we can kind of, kind of roll up here. I think one of the things I thought was also really interesting that I had no idea is you talk about how you are the way you eat as well. And that if you're yes. stressed yeah. while you eat food, your body doesn't produce what it actually needs to properly digest your food. So is there anything else you want to add on that? Or just because I just thought that was revelatory as far as like making sure that we're in the right state when we're consuming our food. Yeah, for sure. So um, a chewing is the other part of that, by the way, too. So um, it, a good little test you can do is next time you're eating, as you're chewing, count to 30. And so generally... Mm. 30 chews tends to be a good uh, sort of rule of thumb. Most people are in a rush and they chew chew about eight times and then swallow. <laughs> um, so just, le- you know, relearning how to to chew properly is the other part. But yeah, when you, um, if you, if you eat Aldesco, as we talk about in the book, Aldesco. you know, so grabbing your um, food in your kitchen and then going back to your kitchen table where you're working from, if you're working from home or like buying the, the packet sandwich on the way to the office, uh, if, you know, people remember those and they're sitting there at your desk and and not getting a break. What you're doing is you're eating in a state where you're still in a state of stress. 
And when you're in a state of stress, just the digestion is is more difficult uh, within your food. So you will actually get a, a higher uh, nutritional value from your food if you're eating it in a, with a sense of space, in a more relaxed state, away from your desk, not thinking about work. You will actually get, you know, like a, a better bang for your buck with what you're eating just based on that. So, you know, when we start to think about that, um, a lot of the a lot of a lot of the kind of books that we came across around this topic talked about breakfast being being the most important meal of the day. And we actually say in the book, lunch is the most important meal of the day because it's the meal that most people who are busy get wrong because it's the meal that people skip. It's the meal that people don't give enough time for digestion. They don't have a proper break, all that stuff we just talked about. So one thing we say in the book is if you think about lunch in a different way and really prioritize it, it actually helps you to also then be prioritizing breakfast and having a nice dinner. So if you just have that focus on lunch, everything else kind of falls into place a bit more. Um, we talk about the concept of next overs in the book. So basically when you're cooking your evening meal, um, instead of cooking that for two people, cook it for three or four and then have some, you know, Tupperware or, you know, have it a, a way to just quickly wrap it up. And then you can take it into the office the next day and microwave it or just leave it on the pan if you're working from home and reheat it up again. And I definitely cook a lot less now than I did from, you know, before I worked with Colette. And my diet is, you know, four or five times better than uh, what it was. And my energy is way up, but it takes me less time. That's the other myth. I think a lot of people have this thing that if I'm going to get really into nutrition, it's going to take me so much time. I don't have time for that. And actually, it's just about, you know, batching up some of that cooking, thinking about a couple of meals ahead, you know, and so you can create the extra next overs at the time. Like you can save so much time when you just give it a little bit more thought. And that's really what the book's, you know, ultimately about is like, that slightly more habitual approach to stuff and kind of working on the habits of food rather than just here's what to eat. Yeah. Love that. So if you're, if this is resonating with you and you're somebody that is a high performing entrepreneur or someone else that wants to just learn how to make sure that you're putting the right things in your body and uh, can do it in a way that is not, you know, totally bogged down by all the crazy science, although the, the science is in there, it's really, really good. Uh, go check out how to have the energy, your nine point plan to eating smarter, improving focus and feeding your potential. So um, we can kind of start wrapping up here. One question, then we'll kind of figure out how more people can find out more about what your stuff is. I've been starting to ask this more frequently just because the whole topic of the show is prioritizing your happiness, health, and relationships while making your entrepreneurial dreams a reality. So as you have spent all this time, you know, helping people with productivity and that you've, you've isolated what's really important to you, right? Like what you want to do less of and what you want to do more of, what is your definition of happiness now, nowadays? <laughs> what is my definition what is, what, of what is it? What does it, what does it mean for you personally? I guess I should, I should phrase it that way. Solve the meaning of life, Graham. Good question. <laughs> good question. Um, I, so I don't think so much about happiness as I think more about contentment, I think. So for me, you know, contentment is, is just feeling grateful and satisfied with where I'm at, with what I'm doing. Um, and I, and I think, I just think that's a more realistic thing to aim for than this nefarious concept of happiness. I think it, I think it's actually quite damaging the way we we think about happiness. So I can think of loads of moments that felt really joyful and really happy. Um, but I think what's more important, and I definitely feel it more than I probably ever did, is just having a general sense that like, yeah, like life's okay. I'm, I'm pretty content. I'm pretty grateful. Uh, and seeing the world through that kind of 
sense of of wonder i guess um for me is that that's i suppose really that's what happiness is but i think about it more as as contentment i think it more i think about it more as working on our ability to see what we have rather than what we don't have and working on our ability to just be grateful for everything i love that thing um i think ricky gervais has talked about this um recently where he talks about like the probability of us being born and then the probability of us being born as a human and then the productive the probability of us being born as a human right here right now where we have good technology and then the product the possibility and the probability of us being born as a human in this era and like in a great country like the united states or the uk like the lottery that we've won just to exist is just mind-blowing and so for me like that's that's the important thing the contentment to recognize that i suppose is the root of what i'd uh most define as happiness i guess yeah i love that and i think it's it's i'm, I'm going to continue asking this question because it's like it's a great we get so question caught up, we get, get caught up in the day-to-day so much and it's like what does that cost you to be yeah. content and more grateful and more happy and realize how lucky we are to be living mm. in this time so so just realize that like in in all of your business growth and all the stuff if you're listening to this just you can have happiness right now it doesn't cost anything it's free so um in conclusion where can people find out more about all the stuff that you got going on and find out the, the the future books that you're producing and the I know you have a newsletter so would love to hear about where people can people can find out more. Yeah, sure. Well, everything's all in one place these days because I'm I'm starting to get a bit more savvy about how I market my books and what we do. So if you go to grahamalcott.com forward slash links, I just have links there to everything. So there's the link to sign up to my weekly email. There's links to the book that's coming out, um, which is called How to Fix Meetings and the one we just talked about how to have the energy a link there to my company, Think Productive, and it's all there. So you just go to graymolcott.com forward slash links and it's just all in that one place. Sweet. And that's G-R-A-H-A-M and then Elcott is two L's and two T's. Is that correct? Two L's, two T's. A-L-L-C-O-T-T. So just in case we don't we don't have all the L's and the T's in place. So I just wanted to say to the listener listening right now, if you are brand new to the show, I just wanted to say welcome. It is an honor to have you hanging out with me and Graham today. And I hope you become a regular listener and subscriber. And I bring out incredible people like Graham all the time. As you can see, I like to go deep. I do my research. And if you're returning, I just want to say thank you so much. You're what makes as possible. Truly appreciate you and thank you. And regardless, if you're new or returning, please go out and leave this a rating review. If you're super lazy and you don't want to articulate anything, just tap the five stars or how, whatever honest rating you want to do. But if you do like this episode, just share your number one takeaway from Graham, whether it was productivity or, or health or whatever it is that you got from today. And the last thing I'll just say is that my life has absolutely been changed by people that have shared an episode with me. So if you have a friend that is super high strong, they're not getting, you know, they're, they're, they're kind of just running all over the place. Maybe share this with them or somebody that would be interested in nutrition, share that with them. It's not that hard and it can really make an impact. So with all that said, Graham, thank you so much for coming on. This has been an absolute blast and I look forward to continuing the conversation with you. A huge pleasure, Brandon. I just want to say, yeah, the research you've done for this and your questions and just presence with it, uh, it's been an honor for me. So yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. 
Hey, it's Brandon here again, and I have a quick favor to ask before you head off, and that is if you are listening to my voice right now and you are currently using either Apple Podcasts or Spotify, it would help me a ton if you could stop what you're doing, take five seconds to tap the number of stars that you think the show deserves. So if you're on Spotify, there's a place to add a star rating right underneath the name of the show. And if you're listening on Apple, just scroll down where you're seeing all the episodes and there's something that says tap to rate. Just tap the number of the stars that you think the show deserves. And you may not know this, but I typically spend over five hours of my own time each week just researching a guest on the show. And then there's the time that's spent recording the show, the intro, reaching out to new guests, and of course, all the editing, publishing, promoting that my amazing wife and high school sweetheart, Leah, helps me to manage. So all that to say, there's a lot that goes on just to get to the point where you listen to this episode. So if you appreciate the content and have 10, five to 10 seconds to spare, it would help a ton if you could leave a quick rating on the show. Extra credit if you choose to leave a review, but just tapping whatever stars you feel the show deserves helps a ton and it takes so little time. So whether you choose to do that or not, I so appreciate you and I'll talk with you soon.